Welcome to Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Good to be here again. Yeah, good to have you back. So um, we're back with you because um, I wanted to posit a um, sort of a revelation that I had from our previous podcast. I've had about, uh, gosh, it's probably about a year now. Is that about how long ago we did that? Sounds about right, yeah. So I've had roughly about a year to kind of really tumble the idea of uh, Strendere of Space around in my head, especially in the context of Manchialino. Um, and I've come to some revelations, and I, I kind of want to share these revelations with you and just continue to talk about Strendere a little bit further, because, um, you know, you opened my eyes a lot um, in our previous podcast, and um, and so, you know, it, it kind of led to these revelations. So, I'll kind of take you through how I got to this place and like came to these conclusions. And then, um, and then from there, um, you know, we can just, um, we can kind of talk about everything. So, um, what I ended up doing is I went back to square one, uh, with Manchialino and, um, started reading his introduction and looking for, context clues, you know, um, obviously from the sword, the spotted filo that we have, um, he, he uses Strindre in the context of constraining your opponent, um, with that gathering step. Right. Right. Um, and so I, I thought about that a little bit further and I was like, okay, so what, what is that what does that achieve? What does that tactically achieve? What is Manchialino's overall tactic? Because this seems to be his tactic, um, like his universal tactic. It's it's really the way that he approaches the fight all the time. Like if you look at any of his plays, um, it's always with that gathering step in the measure, no matter what guard you're in, to provoke your opponent to either attack or retreat, right? So this is, this is Manchialino's universal tactic. So why is that? Um, so... When I was reading through his introduction, um, a, a few things kind of stood out to me. Um, and obviously, you know, with um, what we see with his sword and large buckler, with his sword alone, um, most of his pole arms, um, most of the sections where you're talking about sort of earnest fighting, uh, including sword and rotella, um, all of those, all those systems, right? Everything but the small buckler. Small buckler is very wide, very showy, mm -hmm. uh, very sal oriented. Um, and so I went back through the introduction, and something really jumped out to me. Um, and this is kind of the premise behind the theory that I created. Um, and and Manchialino says we have high guards and low guards. The objective of the high guards is to attack and then follow with a parry. That of the low guards is the opposite, to parry first and then follow with a strike. Be advised that the, from the low guards, only thrusts are natural attacks. So I was like, all right, that's, you know, that seems reasonable, and that seems like a reasonable explanation for why in Manchialino's plays, um, 
basically everything starts with your opponent giving you a thrust. You have just the last two plays of the, the sword alone where your opponent tries to cut at you. Um, well, actually, he says it could be a Mendrito or a Verso or a thrust, right? Mm -hmm. But you're, you're kind of um, treating those as your opponent giving you an earnest attack. And so I took that a little bit further, and I started looking into um, his attacks because I was teaching. I've been primarily teaching from Manchiolino um, and only teaching from Manchiolino for the last, I don't know, maybe year and a half now. Um, and so... I went and I looked at his attacks, and I noticed something really interesting. Um, from Cotolonga Alta, you start, you've got seven attacks. Five of them, um, one, two, three, four, four. Four of them start with a thrust, two of them start with a falso to the hand, and one of them has a changing step where you cut a fendente. Right? Okay. From Porta de Ferro Strata, you've got five attacks, three of them, um, start with the thrust, and then you have one that's a stromatzone, and then one that's a fainted stromatzone. Um, from Cotolunga Strata, everything starts, you have four attacks, and every single one of them starts with a thrust. From Chingiari Porta de Ferro, you've got eight attacks, you've got uh, seven that start with a thrust, and then one that starts with a falso. Mm -hmm. And those are all of his low guards, right? So, what I pulled out of that is, when Manchiolino says that the only natural attacks from the low guards are thrusts, um, I think he means it. <laughs> Quite literally, I mean, if you look at the way that he, he approaches attacking from these low guards, you're either initiating with a thrust or a falso to the hands, which is something, you know, quick and not committed. It's something right. that you can do from wide measure to set these plays up. It also, it also has no cloth over it. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's easier to slice through, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I started building this out in my head, and I was like, man, this is, this is pretty crazy. So what is the tactical implication of, of Manchiolino doing this gathering step into measure? And it started to click with me that basically what you're trying to do is that strendere of space that gathering step that you're taking in on your opponent is trapping them in a low guard. Right? Yeah. Because if they raise their hand to give you a cut from that position, then you have your contra tempo and dewey tempo actions that you can exploit your opponent raising their hand. And so that strendere of space is if your opponent is changing guards or going through whatever the progression is as they're approaching in the fight, if you catch them in a low guard, you make that quick gathering step into measure and now they're trapped in a low guard, and now they're forced to either attack you with a falso or a thrust. And basically what you're doing is you're limiting the possibilities of potential actions. Because if they're in a high guard, you have, as I think the Anonymous says, an infinite number of attacks. So this is kind of a, a, a supporting quote that I pulled from the Anonymous. Um, and so that we have taught and given knowledge of the gallant guards that pertain to this ingenious ingenious art of defense, for there is nothing in this art that you need to understand more readily. This way, when you find yourself against an enemy, you can immediately identify how the swords are placed, for the attacks one can make with a sword are infinite and innumerable, and so too are the ways the swords can be found. Yet, being illuminated with the knowledge of your enemy's placement, you will make effective attacks in the correct tempo, using your sword and your body, and by making attacks in this manner, you will remain secure. 
And I kind of think of that as, you know, if, if I can, if I can limit the potential number of attacks that my opponent can give, where I'm really looking for two things, whether it's a falso or a thrust, then, and then I, I just have to read the secondary action, which is a bigger tempo, right? Right. Then I am in control of the fight. And I think that that's what Manchiolino is going for. And when I realized that it, it absolutely blew my mind. And so much of that is that there's, you know, I think the way that I had originally looked at that was that you're going for a Strindre, you're trying to constrain their sword and things like that, but now I see this as a constraint of measure where you're basically just, you know, locking your opponent in that low guard. So, <laughs> I don't know if you know it, but you just almost exactly described how I teach the Stringeri of the sword and how Tattershall describes it. So, what you've described is effectively what may have been the genesis of the Stringeri of the sword. You go forward, you capture your opponent with your blade over theirs, and then you have taken away almost all of their options, and, and you now have control effectively over what options they have left. And this is how I teach the tactics of the Stringeri of the sword. So yeah, you have now kind of blended the whole idea that we talked about last time, the Stringeri of the body, with the idea of, okay, the low guards, you're pointing at your opponent and you're taking away their options. So now you have in your head, JD, created the Stringeri of the sword. And again, you're closing distance and you're forcing them to have to do something. But now, because you've taken their options away, you tend to have some control over what they're going to do. Yeah. So, so absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that they hadn't clearly thought that part of it out, but by the time you get to uh, uh, Capafero, Giganti, uh, Fabris, that was very clear to them that that's what's going on. When everyone's now pointing at each other and very few people are going to you know, put their point in the air, then it becomes even more clear that you want to get your blade on top of theirs and take away that option. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was, it's pretty interesting because I've taken this, this mindset into looking at other authors too. Um, like I was looking at the sword and small buckler plays of the, uh, of the Anonymous Bolognese. Uh, Stephen Freitas and I had talked about um, uh, Manchilino sword and small buckler and then uh, the Anonymo. And, um, and we just did kind of like a little highlight on it. And uh, one of the things that I noticed is the Anonimo doesn't, and, and reasonably so, the Anonimo doesn't like to use uh, high guards against low guards. Mm -hmm. um, he only has two attacks um, where he's in a high guard and he's attacking somebody in a low guard. Um, and that's where he basically throws a falso to their hand, right? So he's in Gordia Alta and he just throws a falso to the hand, whether it's to the inside or the outside. And... Um, and so it, it seems like this kind of fits into this, this mold of, you know, what are the natures of the, what are, what is the nature of the guards? Um, if you're in a high guard, you have the advantage of lots of different attacks, right? If you're in, in Cota Longa Alta, or you're in Gordia Alta, um, you have the, the potential to throw a Mentrito, a Reverso, you can throw a Thrust, you can throw a Rising Thrust, you can throw a Falso to the Hand, you've got like, you know, like the Anonymous says, an infinite number of attacks. Um, and that's good and well. 
unless your opponent is in a low guard, and then they're in a, a better defensive position because they can basically, you know, rise into um, your attack um, and, and take your attack away, and they can be defensive and then follow that defense up with, with a counterattack. Um, and so in looking at that, you know, a lot of what the Anonimo does with the sword and small buckler is he tries to, he's typically a counter guard fencer, so he'll use low guards against high guards, and he's got a lot of different counters for those. But then when it comes to high guards, he tries to match those with high guards. So there's still kind of like this counter guard play that happens within the, those. When, when I say high, I mean high and wide. So some of them mm. might be Gordia Soto Brachio, um, and not oh. just like, yeah. So po- Point out of presence, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's pretty fascinating um, that you get this, this dichotomy of not wanting to attack somebody that's in an, in a predictable position. Right. And I mean, he's got, he's got a great quote, um, at some point where he says, you know, if your opponent's point is online, then you have to work to get it offline. And if your point, your opponent's point is offline, then you need to work to get it online. So that way you can take it offline. Right. 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 And that's, that's really his overarching philosophy. And you can see that, but I, I think it's true. I think that's really kind of, I think it's, Obviously, it's kind of a, a core staple of what you're going to do for any sword fighting. You know, I mean, how many times are we told that the best tempo to strike somebody is when their points offline, right? Um, well, even yeah. So absolutely, um, a lot of thoughts in my head right now. Um, one of the things I teach is the whole point of swordplay, and I'm going to say first off, it's northern Italian, but it also counts for the bolognese. The whole point is to make your opponent make an injudicious movement while you're in while you're in measure. And so I always caution my students in my tactics discussion about firing into a stillness. If your opponent has a stillness, you don't want to give a dedicated attack into it. You want to make them move. And whether that means uh, a parry, whether that means a footstep, whatever it is, you want to make them move because when they're moving and not attacking you, that's when you want to get them. But if you're firing into a, a stillness, they have the advantage of being able to see that coming and parry it very quickly and, and efficiently, and then you're dead or, or you're, you're in a very bad position yourself. So that's kind of what you're describing here is the advice is always to make your opponent move in some way that you can then counter, that, that, that you can then do something. And even when someone, well, I'll say, especially when someone's in Guardia Alta, for instance, let's say, um, there's not a whole lot they can do. They have one or two lines of attack that they can do. So you can look at that and you can say, okay, I know, I know what they're going to do. And it's super powerful. And we could both die if I do this dumb, right? But the whole point is I need to trigger that action so I can then take control over it. I don't want to just step in without triggering it beforehand, right? So yep. going into a stillness in Guardia Alta is terrible. But do it, firing something at them and triggering it while you're still in control of your measure is the way to finally get past Guardia Alta. So, so absolutely. I mean, I came across this organically. Um, a, a little, little going back in the go-back machine. Um, William Wilson had translated the single sword of Dalagokie, 
Um, he hadn't gotten to anything else yet, but he had gone through that. And so I, that's what I took and turned into what I still give out as one of my papers uh, to just learn the single sharp sword of Dalagokie. Um, what he doesn't discuss, what Dalagokie doesn't get into in, in the single sword section is the whole provocation idea. So basically the whole thing is, okay, when your opponent throws this attack at you, here's this combination of things you can do to them in, in various ways. And he kind of lays out your opponent attacks, and then you have this three-part combination that's a block, a either a, a redoublement or a getting out of the way, and then you're backing off effectively. Um, without knowing it, while I was teaching people this and while I was learning it and absorbing it, what I would do is kind of, I, I brought over from Rapier is, I would do what you and I are now talking about as stringere with my body. I would make some motion without breaking guard and force my opponent to throw something. And then, of course, my defense of that is a much smaller tempo than their cut is. So then I had full control over that fight as soon as I triggered their attack. And so I had no idea what I was doing or, or that what I was doing was described right here in Manchelino Dalagokie, uh, somewhat in Marazzo and in, in, in the Bolognese Anonymous. But now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, hello. That's why I was super successful going through all this time. And I, I, it was just kind of an organic growth for me. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, been, it's been really interesting. I mean, I think I've, I've enjoyed this, this sort of uh, expedition into Manchialino, like really getting deep into Manchialino because yeah. I think it's been probably the most eye-opening experience that I've had in terms of really understanding the Bolognese system because I, f I feel like it feeds into everything else. Like I understand Marazzo better. I understand Alagoke better, um, you know, and I understand the Anonimo better. Um, sometimes it feels like the Anonimo and, and Manchialino are kissing cousins. It's like the crazy thing about these attacks is I don't really think that Manchialino really even wants you to like land these attacks, and that's the craziest thing. Um, I, I I really do feel like his overall intention with um, his progression of attacks is to basically just put you in a position where um, if it lands, your your second or third intention lands, because um, most of these only go to about three intentions. Mm -hmm. Um, great. But if not, then they're really just avenues to get you into uh, Mezzospada, so that way you can perform your, your strata techniques. Right. Um, and then it, something kind of dawned on me a little bit, because I was thinking about Marazzo, and I kind of thought back to that, and I was like, well, well, that makes sense. Because a lot of times you see Marazzo say, you know, he'll give a play, and he'll say, um, your opponent can throw a Mandrito or a Reverso or a Stoccata. Those are the only natural attacks. And then he goes into whatever the progression of the play is. Um, it's a sort of a, a, a turn of phrase that he uses a lot um, throughout a lot of his progressions and plays. And I was thinking about that and I was like, okay, so that's pretty interesting. So basically what he's saying is it doesn't matter how your opponent attacks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're going to give an attack. These are the natural attacks. And, you know, just, it's, it's almost like he's saying like, keep it simple, stupid, right? The kiss principle. Right. And he's just telling you to kind of like condense this down. 
and I kind of see I see that with the way that Mancialino is progressing with a lot of these attacks. You know, they're not all at all by any means overly complex, um, especially for his 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 general attacks. And where you really get into the complexity is when you start to get into the strata techniques, and then you start going for presses and things like that, and you start to really start to see the intricacy of what he really wants in his progression of play. Um, and that, to me, has been really eye-opening. So when it comes to defense, it's like you want to try to... Manchiolino's overall philosophy is to try to trap your opponent in a low guard to control the way that they can potentially attack you. And then when it comes to offense, you're basically giving a series of attacks that create an opportunity to then press strata. And that's really what you're, you're looking for. Um, so, so, yeah, so let me hit a few points that you just touched on. Sure. Um, I think it's Morazzo. I cannot remember offhand, but, but one of the masters, I believe it's Morazzo, talks about everyone needs to learn Metzospada because everyone's going to end up there. Once you start fighting, you're going to end up in Metzaspada. And in fact, that's an interesting point, complete tangent about my interpretation of Saviolo. But we, we don't have to go there right now. Saviolo is a Bolognese master, or at least a, he, he's teaching Bolognese system, by the way. Um, but what you just described, again, goes back to one of the things that I try to teach once my students get to a, a level of understanding tactics. Um, and this is an important point of teaching is students learn when they're ready to learn certain things. And so one of the things I try to get across is that until you have gotten to a certain point, you're not going to understand tactics well. Um, so one of the things that in my tactical discussion that I talk about is um, cognitive overload. And the whole thing you're trying to do is you're trying to keep your cognitive brain processing quickly and you know what you're doing with it while overloading your opponent's brain. And that's kind of what you just described is what, if I throw a straight shot at you, you and I are kind of on an equal cognitive basis. If I've thrown two shots at you, one faint and then a, uh, let's say uh, I'm coming around and throwing a, a, a squalambrato, uh, you know, a, a thrust, you start to parry, I come around throw a squalambrato, and you try to parry that again. Well, now I'm overloading your cognitive brain when I have this very trained uh, tondo that comes right behind it, right? So I have trained this combination, and you are busy going, ow, 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 you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that is exactly what I think is going on here. And then if you add in the whole idea of mezzaspada, if I've gotten to the point where I've done three different actions and haven't yet hit, at that point, I'm close enough to be able to grapple and grab your wrist and twist your sword around or whatever. So I need to understand how that works, you know. And that's why I think it's, it is Morazzo who says that you've got to learn Mesaspada because you're going to be there at some point. And that's kind of like mixed martial arts. You got to learn the floor work because you're going to go to the floor at some point, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I think Morazzo actually says uh, he gives a pretty good quote later on where he says something along the lines of um, if you don't learn Mezzaspada, if you don't learn the, the strata plays, then um, if a fencer who, f who understands strata fences against somebody who doesn't or has never taken the time to learn it, then the person who's learned um, strata or both 
will basically chase the other fencer all the way across the fencing hole. Right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And I mean, one of the other things about Mancellino that I found while I was doing this stringeri research, which I thought I thought was fantastic. Um, in his intro to the Spada de Fia section, uh, he goes on this long ramble about uh, diplomats versus soldiers. And it suddenly, the light bulb went off in my head. What he was talking about is the difference between play fighting and real fighting. That diplomats have all these flourishes of, of speech and, they, and they, you know, they do all these things and the soldier is very simple in, in their speech and they get to the point and it's more dangerous. And so reading that, when you realize you're going into the first uh, section where he's talking about using a sharp sword, it then lays out all the other stuff, all of the, the, the spada giotto, um, giotto uh, uh, that you see before is, and this is what I've been saying to some others as well, is I, I honestly believe the, the sal play, the, the beating of the buckler, the, the guardia alta, I believe that was all fun training and training that they would take out onto the square to attract more students because it's loud, it's flashy, uh, you can get students to come pay you money. Uh, but once you got down to, okay, now we're actually learning how to use a sword, then you get to the spot of the fia section and you reduce it all down to, like you said, basically the strata. Basically anything that's pointing at your opponent is what you need to think about. I see you looking it up. So, well, when you, when you said that about the introduction, um, I thought that was really interesting um, because I was just reading the introduction of his uh, uh, his strata plays the other day, and his uh, you know his his mythological <laughs> expose that he gives is pretty interesting because it talks about um, basically these big goat gods chasing around the nymphs. <laughs> yeah. Right, but that's that's his that's his setup to going into um, into Strata, and that's that's actually really interesting, right? Because you think, you know, with the nymphs, everything is going to be beautiful, um, whereas you have these like big woolly goat gods chasing them around, and that's basically kind of what Strata becomes, where you have this, you you kind of have to pull out the nastiness of sword fighting in a way uh, with Strata play. Yeah, book four, beginning of book four is where it is the whole piece that I'm thinking about. And it's like five paragraphs. I'm not going to go through it, but still. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that, I think that Mangelino, everything he wrote is on point somehow. I, I don't think he got very fuzzy in his interest and stuff, but it was allegorical. So therefore, we have to figure out what allegory he was trying to get at in, in, when he's talking about each thing, um, because he does say over and over again, you know, I, I'm, I want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to speak too much, you know, I don't want to, to, to write too much, although that might have also been pointed at Marazzo, but, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I got to tell you, I mean, I just, going through the, the, the Stringere, you know, I'd already gone through the Bolognese Anonymous when you and I uh, spoke last. And then I kind of blew through Dalagoki and I blew through Mangelino and then I got to Marazzo and oh my God, was that a slog. Uh, just getting through 
and translating his language was so much pain. Um, I, I am not a fan of his writing. Yeah, he's a... Uh, he's... Uh, yeah. We... He uses it, his own vocabulary, and it's like... He does. The, the, the Bolognese Anonymous, Manchelino, and Dalagocchi all have very similar vocabulary when they're describing the things I was researching, the stringere. And in fact, you see the same actions in all books. Marazzo, just, he has words that don't appear in Florio, that don't appear in any modern dictionary. You have to suss them out. You've got to figure out context, and then you're still not sure. It was painful. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there's still a little bit of Venetian influence in there for Murato. I mean, given given the the time period, um, I found I wonder, some. Some was Latin. He, yeah, some the, was Latin. The, yeah. There was a couple things that I found that were actually Latin words uh, that that he threw in there. Okay. Um, but Venetian might make sense as well. Um, yeah, because like Stephen and I have been going a lot through Sanudo to try to get the timeline for Guido Rangoni and trying to translate and look through Venetian Italian is one of the most ridiculous things that I've ever looked at in yeah. my entire life. I haven't had the pleasure yet. So yeah, good on you, man. It's <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's brutal, but so what, what all have you found in terms of Stringeray and your kind of, your ex in your explorations since the yeah. last time we talked. So l uh, let me give you the the down low, and then if you want to, we can dig a little deeper. Sure. Across all four manuals, I have found 21 uses of some stringeri variation in, in the actions, and six uses describing non-actions, okay? 17 of the 21, both uh, flavors of the word press are in use. And that is to press two things together and to compel your opponent to do something. Um, usually they're explicitly so. Usually the, the authors are like, um, this thing you did forces your opponent to either back off or throw a shot. So there, there are, there's several of those. In one additional usage, it's Lev asking a question about the actual that Gio has just described. So it's, it's still assuming the definition that, that Giovanni imparts. Uh, in the remaining three uses in action, all in Marazzo, uh, it's used to describe either one of the two definitions or the other. Uh, so in two places, Marazzo uses it to squeeze two swords together with one hand. So when you're fighting with the two-handed sword, there's two places where he's like, you will, you will grapple with your opponent and you will you know, loosen some fingers from one sword and grab the other and squeeze them together. So he uses stringeri variation for that. Um, and then in another one, uh, he talks about one foot forcing the other foot forward, and he uses a stringary variation. Uh, but he doesn't use both there. He doesn't, he doesn't rely on both. Um, so I feel, setting Marazzo aside, but even Marazzo supports this, I feel pretty strong that the, the word stringary used in fencing actions comes with both elements, comes with the pressing of two things together and the forcing of an action on your opponent. And I can go into a little more depth. Um, I, the next thing I want to do is go through Capafero and, and uh, the later, the, the Northern Italian masters, 
and compare notes with them. Um, because I think, as we just described, I do think that like as Mancellino's actions where he's kind of stringering with the sword, but he doesn't describe it. I think that eventually they got to the point where they're now describing stringering both with the body and with the sword. Um, Capafaro talks about in his book, he actually says, when I say to stringer, I mean the same as to gain, which is a, a bit problematic when you look at Vienna Anonymous and, and his description of the gain. But if you then think about the fact that stringering the sword includes a gain, that you have to gain a sword in order to stringer it, that maybe it's not so problematic. Um, but in almost every case where the Bolognese are using stringer, like you, or some, like I said, some, string, some version of, of stringere, like you say, you are staying in guard, sometimes explicitly not throwing a blow. Sometimes they very much say, you're not gonna do anything here except close and stringer your opponent and then you're forcing their action. So I'm still safe in my guard. All I've done is close distance and then made you freak out and have to throw something. So I am in my stillness, kind of. All I've done is move forward a little bit and I am awaiting to see what quadrant of my body you're gonna throw a shot at and then I enact whatever, you know, whatever defense and uh, counterattack I wanna, want to enact. So I'm, I'm even stronger now in the whole concept that, that there are two elements to Stringere. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's really interesting. Um, that level of uh, control and predictability um, seems like something that I think a lot of times when we hear a lot of people complain about the amount of doubles that they see in, in fencing and things like that, I think that's something that a lot of people aren't considering is, you know, kind of going back to that quote from the Anonimo, you know, understanding the guards that your opponent's in and understanding the knowledge of your enemy's placement, um, you'll make the correct effective attacks in the correct tempo using your sword in your body, right? I mean, that that kind of idea that, you know, you know if your opponent is in a high guard, if your opponent's in a low guard, you know, if you've constrained them in a low guard, then you've got this predictable response. It's easy to deal with that predictable response where either they're going to give you the quick tempo, which is a thrust or a falsehood to the hand, right? And you can you can deal with that in a way where, like with, with uh, Mancilino in particular, when he... Um, you know, for all intents and purposes, since it's he's he's dealing with the spot of defilo, he's he not taking any chances, right? This is this is serious um, because he's dealing with a sharp sword, and his response is to, you know, just do a falso to take the sword offline. He's staying in guard in Porta de Ferro Stretta because, you know, the stakes of what he's doing in his fencing are high, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, you know, he keeps it relatively simple. Um, but it, it's the, the idea that you're taking that, that small tempo to create a bigger tempo that then you can read. And that, I mean, I, I think that's, that's really the key in all of this is, you know, it reminds me of something a little bit, um, I think that came from the, the Vienna Anonymous, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, he has a really good description of, um, correct tempo, right? 
and I'm gonna I might get this wrong but I think he basically says something along the lines of if you can make sure that um, your tempo is always smaller than your opponent's tempo um, then that's always like the correct tempo or something right. along those lines right yeah yeah and I mean it, it flows in with something that's stuff that I teach you don't want to go too much faster or too much slower than your than your opponent and I, I often use the word partner because we're kind of doing a dance I want to react in the same speed but with a smaller tempo than you um, because I have had instances where I've gone too fast and I, I did a counter before my opponent even reacted and I screwed myself right so reacting in the same tempo or reacting in the same speed but narrowing your tempo and for instance, this is one of my arguments years ago for, for Dalgokie, is Dalgokie took all the things that you see in Marazzo and, and Manchelino, and he narrowed them down to the 80% of the things you're gonna use all the time. Or not even that, maybe like, maybe like 50% of the things. You know, basically, he, he got rid of a lot of the fluff. He got rid of all of what I'm now saying is the, 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 um, the spadajaco, the, the, all the, the plays. And so, for instance, I can teach someone to do a very good set of sword fights by teaching them only mezzo mandrillo, mezzo reverso, uh, the guardia di testa, two different versions, and then to get the leg out of the way. And with those three and a half, four guards, and then body knowledge, I can get, I can get someone to where they can beat a whole lot of fencers because I can draw your cut or even your thrust if I've got my sword covering you, and, and to add to what you said, taking away an option, not only in, in knowing they're going to throw something, but knowing where it's going to come because you've taken away a good portion of what they were wanting to do, then you force an action that you have a response to that is a quicker tempo than what the action itself is. And so, I mean, I'm thinking in my head some of the fights I taught years ago I would force, I would close and force my opponent to throw a good mandrito tondo. But then my response is simply a mezzo mandrito myself, which blocks the center line. And as soon as our blades connect, I've got a straight thrust to them, or I've got a back edge to cut to the head or whatever I want to do. Um, and then to reverse that, one of the things I've done to people, after we've had a few exchanges, they know my speed, they kind of understand where I'm coming from. I may jump in and throw a very slow or very broad, not a slow, but a very broad tondo. Well, I know where their hand is about to be. And, and I'm going to do that when I want to grapple. So I'll throw that slow tondo. And as they're moving their sword in a metro mandrito themselves, I'm closing on their wrist. And I'm going to trap that wrist because I know where it is. So that is me using a slower tempo to, to take their faster tempo and know where they're about to be. And that to me is that the whole tactics thing is defining their world, defining what their options are, and then taking their options away and forcing them into the options that you have a very quick response to. Yeah, there's, um, there's actually a really good quote from the introduction of Manciolino where he talks about just that. Um, uh, I'll just give a, 
a synopsis of it. But basically what he tells you to do is to um, kind of give your, your opponent the same blow over and over again. So that way they you're conditioning them to give you the same response. Yeah. So that way when it comes time for you to finally like push your plan, you know exactly how your opponent's going to respond and then you change what your intention is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I just, I find that so interesting. It, it's, it's funny. Cause I think a lot of the, the things that we, we come across and we're like, you know, this is, this is just good fencing. This is good fencing advice. And then you, you, you find it like in a text like Manchialino where he's basically telling you to do the same thing. And it's like, right. Hey, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And I mean, modern teachers, modern, uh, uh Olympic style, um, fencing teachers are teaching that basically make a pattern to break a pattern right right yeah oh, okay here we go so if you're trying to make the opponent deliver an attack in order to strike him within the same tempo you should yourself deliver the same attack three or four times in a row almost as an invitation it is common amongst fencers to ape one another so your opponent will see himself compelled to eventually do the same to you and in the moment you will perform the attack as planned yeah Yep. I would never go four times. I've, I've found three is the outer limit because three, most good opponents will have already gotten your number. Um, so I will do two or three and then break it on the third or fourth, depending on how good my opponent is. But yeah, no, this, this is something that, that I see a lot of very good fencers do. And it's, and it's kind of universal, right? I mean, it doesn't even matter what style you're doing. Um, make your opponent think that you're doing something again and again and again, and that's all you have, and then break it and do something different. Mm -hmm. And and you'll see at least some mid-level fighters' heads explode. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to go through. Um, another interesting thing that, that, that I've gone through here with translating myself through some of these, these points is one of the things I did on each of my papers that I wrote for each master was I snapped down all the different translations and then I wrote my own underneath it and then I went back and kind of checked and to see how close we were and it's interesting to see how people translate how people you know what what words they use what phrases they use and how how off they can be um, uh, and by off I mean veering away from what the original said you know in order to try and get more uh, uh modern speech or whatever sometimes they really veer away from what i think the the, the author was trying to get across so it was, an, it was an interesting it was an interesting adventure for me to try and do this I've, I've not really tried to do much translation myself that's interesting um i wonder i mean i i'm no like with with Tom Leone in particular, I know that that was a criticism of his. Early on, people would criticize him for, you know, trying to be too, trying to translate too much to having a, um, a yeah. readable aesthetic. Yeah. yeah um, to, to bring it into modern uh, uh, vernacular. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, but at times, I mean, I, I've I've still seen that as like his translation of, of Manchialino in particular. Um, and I actually, I just got his copy or his translation of uh, Vigiani and I love it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Um, I actually like reading that one a lot. Um, I think it's a little more clear and concise. Um, 
Whereas I feel like the one that directed, um, I think it's a little bit more true to the original Italian. But at the same time, I get, I, I find myself getting a little bit lost in sort of the pedantic right. nature of Vigiani's writing. And so having that cleared up to the point where it's a lot more readable, because Vigiani, you know, you're with Vigiani in particular, you almost need that to be readable, right? Because it's it's a dense text and it's a conversation and it needs to have flow to it in order to not like be too overwhelming. Otherwise it feels like you're just kind of like reading a technical manual, right? Which, you know, I guess can be fine. It, it right. technically is a technical manual. But um, I find that having that flow makes it a lot more enjoyable to read, um, which is really interesting. But with Mia Cialino in particular, uh, for Tom Leone's translation, um, there are times where I feel like I really appreciate the way that Tom Leone translated um, and, and sort of consolidated things. You know, he, he left out a lot of the colorful language that I didn't realize was there until I looked at the uh, the direct swinger um, right. Manchilino translation. Right. Like there's <laughs> in, in two swords when you're you're cutting down and he's like uh, I, I can't remember what he says specifically but it's something along the lines of you're gonna make sure that you split the person's skull open or something like that it's pretty ridiculous so well, and the thing I'll tell people is is don't ever stop with one translation especially if there's if there's more out there I mean if, if yeah. you've got three people translating Manchilino you should read all three and compare them as you're going through them uh, because then you'll start seeing where the translations disagree and you need to take the time to then go and see if, 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 if that disagreement impacts your, your fighting, I'll put it this way, you need to take the time to look into that and to see if it does anything. Cause I've seen a lot of people who have, I won't say wrong interpretations, but they have very interesting interpretations because they took a very loose translation and then further played with it and, and you know, and it just kind of walked further and further away from what I think the original was. So this art that we're practicing, it takes some digging into. It takes some really looking and comparing and seeing, okay, what, what was this getting at? And this is also why it is good to listen to a Guy Windsor who has done that, who has looked at the different translations and, and has his example, but also don't stop with him. You know, I think I told you last time we talked, I've got a professor, or I had a professor many years ago who was like, look, everything I tell you right now, it is your job to prove me right or wrong in the future. And right. you know, anything I tell my students, I challenge them. If, if you find a different interpretation that makes more sense, come to me, let's talk about it, because I am, I want to find out what it said. I'm not going to say I'm right. I want to find out what this thing is about. And if I'm wrong, I really need to know about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're right about that. I mean, you know, I just the other day, uh, we were going through the Strata techniques. And I was looking at, I think it's the first Strata play, um, True Edge to True Edge in Manchiolino. And um, if I remember correctly, in the Leone translation, he says to, I think, take the sword to the, uh, it's something along the lines of, he, he says something like, you want to beat to the outside, right? And so when you think beating to the outside, you would think that you're going to beat to the right, mm -hmm. right?
right? Um, whereas in Swinger's translation, he said something akin to beat outside of your outside of your person, as in like you're just beating it away from you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's a huge difference. Yeah. Um, because, you know, the way that uh, when I was reading Tom Leone's, I was like, okay, well, because basically what you're doing is you're cutting a, um, a reversal tondo. And then if you're trying to beat to the outside from there with your cross guard, that's, that's a really awkward position to be in because you're kind of extending that hand forward, right? Um, and and kind of pushing it out almost like you're pushing a thrust over your opponent's shoulder. And that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Whereas if you do that reverse tondo and your opponent catches it, and then you can beat to the inside, but outside of your person. Right. Right? And then you can actually go across your body. That makes perfect sense because you're basically just hooking with their cross guard and then you throw that vendente to the top of the head. And it makes, you know, all the sense in the world. Yep. yep. So, you know, that was one where I was, you know, just kind of illustrate that, you know, yeah, there's there's definitely times where you think that you've got something um, or, you know, you know, one translator might um, look at something more literally where the other one might see it more as, um, you know, I guess, I don't know. How would you describe that? Um, a, just, just simply a different choice of words, a, a different choice of, of, uh, of a different translation that went into it that didn't get to the spirit of what the master was saying. Um, yeah. And I mean, again, that's, it, it, it is a dangerous position to be in to, you know, to let's make this more simple, but then you miss the nuance that, was, that actually was, was in the word. This is why this whole stringeri conversation uh, or research to me is, is kind of important because looking at it now, it makes so much sense over the years, but I still know a lot of people who whenever I describe this version of stringeri, it's, it's an eye opener. It's like, oh, you know, I'd never thought of stringeri that way. There's a, a, a passage in Marazzo, and I'm not finding it right now, um, that is a great example of why I hate Marazzo uh, and what we're talking about here. He talks about, I may get this wrong, but he talks about your opponent may th- throw a tondo or a, like a high mandrito, and you have, you have provoked this, this shot and what you're going to do is you're going to catch it on the true edge of your dagger. And then there's a few words that don't show up in any dictionary I've ever said, I've ever seen. And <laughs> one of them, I think, translates as digit or as point. And the way I translated it as I was looking at it blindly was you catch on the true edge of your dagger with your finger point down to the ground. And I thought, okay, that makes sense. If he's coming in in a mandrito from my left side, I can catch on the true edge of my dagger. Oh, yeah. And, and my thumb's pointing down. I know which one you're talking about. But yeah. two of the translations say, with the point of the dagger down. And as I'm thinking through this in my head, if someone throws a, a, a pretty high mandrito, that's not going to be a, a good position to catch it in, right? Right. So, and I'm open to the fact that I may be completely wrong in it, but the way it was working out to me the finger is what is, is the digit that's pointing down. But because man, man, uh, Marazzo uses such strange words, I have no idea which of us is right, you know? 
Right. So a slightly different problem, but still, you know, we're, we're, we're still making stuff up. We're still trying to figure out what exactly is this and where did this word come from? Yeah. Yeah, I... Marazzo, he's just... I can understand why Tom Leone gave up on Marazzo. Yeah, he's, he's out. I, I mean, you know what? Uh, I said I wasn't going to mention this, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway. After, after reading through big chunks of Marazzo and trying to understand where he's coming from, it would not surprise me if I found that Marazzo was written by two or three different people. Because the, the flavor of his writing, in my, in my mind, and again, I'm not a, a, an Italian expert, so I'm, I'm, I'm throwing this out there from nowhere. It seems to change in a couple of sections, and he seems to use different terminology from one section to, the, to another. And that may have been, that could have been, for instance, just him writing it over a long period of time and then finally getting it published. Um, it could have been a number of things. I'll also say the 1568 version and 1536 version have different words in many places. Um, and so it's not a direct reprint. They went back through and changed some stuff. Um, they, changed, they, they changed a shit ton of commas. Um, so the, the, the grammar is, is different from one book to another. So whenever I was going through it, I actually had both versions open and I would check them against each other and try and find if there was any middle ground. And it was really helpful because, it, you know, the, the 36 version would have like an entire paragraph that's one sentence. Yep. And then the 68 would break it up a little bit more, which made it a little bit easier to understand what was being said. So, but yeah, anyway, it, he's not my favorite author right now. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I had to... <laughs> I, I tried to freeform read his introduction uh, yeah. because, you know, again, we're doing this whole thing about Guido Rangone. And so we were, we were reading through and I was just reading his introduction to kind of give people a feel for, you know, Guido Rangone and his context and, you know, Murato's introduction. And that introduction is two long run on sentences. Like it's two paragraphs that are, basically you know um i don't know i mean it's it's basically two pages of like two run-on sentences right and it, it, it's which ridiculous. did you read which one were you reading uh i direct swingers um uh copy of or translation of the 1536 okay okay go back yeah. and try it again in the 68 because i can i can almost guarantee you they broke it up more and added different uh, punctuation in yeah let's um, take a look at that yeah, because uh, it, it, it may be that I think whoever laid out the 68, if it, if it was Marazzo himself, he basically went back and said, oh, God, I screwed a lot of things up in the 36. But the 68 is also. It, it looks rushed. Um, there's a lot of words that are crushed together. And when I went back and looked at the 36, I was like, oh, this is three different words. This, this is not one long, strange word I've never seen before. This is, you know, I see how it's now broken into words. So the 68 feels to me like it was more of a rushed version. Um, and in fact, there's a, there's a few places, this is uh, getting deep into the weeds of, of, of geekness. Um, there are a few places, there's like one section I'm looking at right now, the 1360, 13, 1536 version uses constringere, and then it says it has constringere again but the o has a line over it 
which in the 36, an O with a line over it meant it, it took the place of O-N or O-M. So there's a lot of places where they were like compressing letters by just putting special letters in, okay? Yep. But then the 68 puts constringere and then costringere without the line over it. So it's like they assumed that was an actual word by itself <laughs> and, and not a compressed word. And there's a lot of those in the 68 where it's like the 36 did something that was just compressing or that was, you know, making it easier to print. And then the, the 68 took it and like, oh, well, that's what they should have said. So it's kind of weird. It's, it's interesting uh, looking at them. Yeah, that is really interesting. Huh. So, so I wanted to get at something else also, um, which you are finding, I think, right now. Um, and I, again, I may have mentioned this in our last podcast, but um, it is my belief, the way I teach Northern Italian is I'm starting with one manual and I'm also looking at three other manuals in order to, to get the whole. And the Bolognese is the same way. And right now, my personal belief is the core of the Bolognese system is the anonymous Dallagocchier, uh, Manchelino, probably Marazzo, and then you might say Vigiani is kind of the spiritual uh, part of, of, of the, the Bolognese, maybe. But um, Dr. Forging says the same thing about Lichtenauer. He says you cannot understand Lichtenauer unless you've read the four manuals, that, that the four base manuals of Lichtenauer. Because each one adds a little bit more, a little, you know, a, a different angle or whatever that you have to understand. And I actually, I, I, I'm believing the same thing out of this manual. I might even say the Spanish, but I have to talk to Puck and see if he agrees with me on some of the Spanish system. Yeah, I actually, I need to talk to Puck because I need to, I've got some interesting, interesting things that I've found about Manchiolino. Like, uh, uh. Gonzalo Francesco Gonzaga, mm -hmm. the great captain, yep. um, one of the most famous Spanish generals in the Italian wars. His his son-in-law is the person that um, Manchiolino dedicates his treatise to. Um, and it's really fascinating because there's this, uh, I don't know how Manchiolino ended up in Naples, but he went, he was down there. I mean, and and in some way became involved in the Spanish court, um, and it makes sense because that's kind of the military revolution that uh, 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 Cordoba ended up sort of postulating was incorporating sword and buckler into pike formations and things like that to counter other pike formations. And so I don't know if that was, I don't know if that's how Manchiolino ended up down there, but. Um, there's, there's any variety I mean, of ways. I mean, they traveled all over the place. No, for sure, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's not it's not far. It's just it's weird. Uh, I mean, even from the context of uh, being a Bolognese person, um, when it came to the politics of the time, like I could understand finding yourself in French service. I can f understand finding yourself in Venetian service, um, and and service with Ferrara, Florence, um, you know, there are plenty of anecdotes throughout, but to join the Spanish in Naples. Well, but sure. So look at the lives of a lot of the artists. They would, I mean, there were 
plenty of artists who were like the court artist for, and I'm, I'm pulling this out of my, my butt right now, but the court artist in Milan who would then go to be uh, the court artist in London and then would go down to Madrid for a while and then maybe come back to Milan. So artists did that all the time. It, it also would make sense if you're not in fealty to someone that as a soldier, you would also, you know, you might find yourself in Naples and the, the, the governor down there might hear that you, uh, this famous swordsman is in Naples and he asks, you know, he demands an audience and then he says, hey, I'm going I'm to put you in charge of, of some troops. And what do you say? No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, actually, that's, you know, that's really, that's a really interesting point because um, Louis, I, I guess it's Luigi Gonzaga. I, I can't remember the name of this guy's name off the top of my head. Have you seen Gross Point Blank? Uh, the movie Gross Point Blank? I have not, no. Okay. Yeah. There's a great scene. In, well, there's, it, it's a good movie. I love it anyway. But uh, there's a, a scene in there where this guy joined the military and then he became an assassin for hire all around the world. And his girlfriend finds this out and she's talking about, uh, about nations and countries. And he's like, no, man, it's, that's all marketing. And honestly, reading what I've read about Venice and about, you know, Naples and about the Ottoman Empire, it's even more so back then. The, you know, who, who was a, a kingdom, who was in charge of what was all marketing back then because it ebbed and flowed so fast and, and, and so dynamically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, I, you know, Stephen and I are about to do... I guess I don't know if we'll have any episodes out for. We might have our teaser episode out by the time this I put this one out, but um, you know we're we're about to do an eleven or twelve part series on the life of Guido Rangone and Ugo Pepoli, um, and we've gotten so deep into like this narrative and this this story of understanding like the the tragedy of the Bentivoglio family and um, you know looking at. Guido Rangone and, and his relationship with the Bentivoglio and how that basically just throws him, especially as a young man, through like this crazy ringer where, you know, he's, um, I mean, you could, you could argue that he's fiercely loyal and that's, that's a good trait of Guido Rangone, but it, it just puts him in some really crappy situations. But yeah. this, this crazy ebb and flow, I mean, the Italian wars are nuts. You know, right. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, the the League of Cambrai basically ends with Pope Julius, like, taking every single one of his allies and stabbing them in the back. Yep. <laughs> it's like, all right, we've taken out Venice. Now I want you to all get out of Italy. Well, and, and, <laughs> That's and the craziest an, thing. an interesting thing to read that kind of gives you some of the back and forth. There's a couple of books in my head right now. One of them is uh, Cellini's uh, biography or autobiography. Um Benvenuto Cellini, who is the goldsmith, he wrote basically this long diary throughout his life that kind of documents his wandering around Italy and being the goldsmith for the Pope and then deciding I hate that guy and walking away from it for a while and going to be a goldsmith for someone else. And then the Pope sent him a whole bunch of jewels and said, please come back. And he, and he comes back. You know, so that is an interesting view on a personal level of someone who went from one loyalty to another back and forth. 
And then there's another book I've got that talks about the, the, the Venetians and the, uh, the Ottomans and how every season the islands in between or that they would kind of fight back and forth over would just switch from one to the other. And everyone on that island would then be slaves to whoever just got it, you know. So it's just their life was just like, oh, crap, who's in charge now? Um, so, yeah, there's just there's just that whole it was all so dynamic and, and, and crazy. And they were all cousins, you know, I mean, the French and, and the, the 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 hello, um, the Holy Roman Empire. And, you know, they're all just related. And it's like all family squabbles across Europe. Oh, yeah. Even even in like smaller Italian politics, it's, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think we're. We were just going over something the other day. We were talking about, like, the region going down, like, the Via Emilia from Bologna down to Faenza and Imola, mm-hmm. um, and talking about different lords. And <laughs> and every time I mention somebody, Stephen's like, oh, yeah, that's a cousin of the Bentivoglio, or, yeah, they, they're married to a Bentivoglio. And it's yeah. like everybody, you know, everybody's family. So, uh, you know, they're all connected in some way it's, it was pretty crazy Even but and that's it, it, one of the things that i uh, and i've mentioned this earlier and someday i may even finish it i've got a book about a book i've got a, an article about saviolo um it was kind of a response to an article written years ago that was that was saying saviolo was a spanish master um but one of the things that that saviolo talks about is he was roaming around the Dalmatian Islands owned by Venice. And, you know, he, he watched these fights. And so these guys just went everywhere. You know, they, they got up and wandered around and learned where they could. And, and then you look at a lot of them are griping about the fact that no one tests for masters anymore. You know, everyone just claims to be a master and they are. And, and interestingly enough, you see this both in the martial world and in the Luthery world and probably in others, that the complaint is that back in the good old days, there used to be these tests that you had to take before you could claim the, the title of maestro. And now it's given to anyone or whatever. And so, yeah, you know, these guys like Saviolo wander up and down the coast and then they land somewhere where no one knows them. And they're like, hey, I'm a master now. And so combine that with like like we we're just saying, you know, the 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 family squabbles and the back and forth and stuff. And you've got some crazy dynamics of people's reputations going before them and then being swept up by the Spanish. And suddenly they're working for the Portuguese. And it's just it's just crazy. Yeah. So that's one of the interesting things. So uh, that's what I was going to say earlier is like Don Luigi de Cordoba he was actually the kind of person there's a book that I found where it talks about he had, he liked to surround himself with sort of talented individuals. So he had like a a court where he had like these famous writers, architects. um, And he would, he would, he liked to collect interesting people, if you will, to Mm -hmm. like surround himself with those people. And I mean, you know, I guess it's not that unusual for somebody to have, you know, like a sort of an intricate court. Um, 
but it seems like he was the kind of person that tried to sur surround himself by like intellectuals and things like that. So, you know, perhaps that is how Manchulino got down there where, you know, in some way he made his name as a fencer or as a fencing master yeah. and then was invited to come down and, and take part in, in that court. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to find out if that was before or after he published, because I think a number of people, their books got around and, and they, their name was kind of known or heard of. But yeah, you, you talk about uh, the Dukes d'Este. Um, they they were the same way. They liked to surround themselves with interesting people, and that's how Fiore landed there. Yeah. And and stayed there for a long time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, that's the other interesting thing that I think that Stephen and I have discovered is that the uh, you know the d'Este were basically. Um, should I put this? sort of the deeply interconnected with the Bentivoglio family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, when it comes to like, uh, Hermes and Annabelle Bentivoglio, who are both brothers, um, you know, they, when they went to go train as knights, they went to Ferrara to go train as knights hmm. in the late 1400s. So, you know, when people are looking for connections between various Italian martial arts and whether or not Fiore has any context in, in the Bolognese system, you know, I think that kind of casts a little bit of doubt on that now. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, the play that I always like to point to is Vigiani. Vigiani's basic play. Yep. It's also found in Dalagokie when he talks about how to learn to fight in 30 days. Yep. And it's also found in, in, in Meyer up in Germany. And so it's, you know, you, you see the, the relation between all the swordplay. And I've gotten to the point where I'm look, I look at almost all swordplay and I see it's all one. It's all the same thing, just different flavoring. There, there's, you know, different masters had the things that they like to focus on a little bit more than others. But if you look at the fundamentals and you look at, at, at what goes into swordplay, it's all the same thing. Um, I used to harass Puck uh, when he was first really studying the, the Spanish stuff, he and Mary, and he would be teaching and I'd be behind him and he would teach us a, a, a system or, or I mean a, a play of some sort. And I would whisper, yeah, that's in Capafero, but the, the flourish is new. And he, <laughs> he'd turn around and whack me. But in, in a way, I mean, it's, there's, there's a lot in Spanish if you think about Capafero or Fabris standing upright or standing more naturally, the play is the same thing. The Spanish just tend to add a, a very death blow at the end or something, some kind of a flourish that, that the Italians don't have. And then you start to see all these different swordplay systems, the French, the, the well, French, the Spanish, the, the Germans, they're all the same thing. It's just the Germans teach you to be a little more aggressive. The Italians teach you to try and draw your opponent in more, you know. Otherwise, the actions are, are all, they have to be the same. Yeah, I mean, uh, Manchiolino basically does Meyer's Rose. Yeah. And his strata techniques, um, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I started working through the Anonimo Ricardiano. So one of our, um, one of our students reached out to me and was like, uh, and asked me after I had talked to Ian Davis, he was like, Hey, um, do you want to work with me on the Anonimo Ricardiano? So we'll, we'll get together like once or twice a week during the day. And, and we've been working through that manual. 
and it's really fascinating. Um, that was a tough read for me. I, I bought it. I've got it down here. I, 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 it is. I cracked it one Sunday to just start going through it, and I, I, I turned it off for a while after a while. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I think that's I think that's what's interesting about it though is like um, trying to get the plays to work um, based on how they're described has been quite the adventure. But one of the things that I found really interesting is it it's really just teaching sort of core techniques. Mm. Um, I I think the one thing that really has been hard to figure out and hard to really kind of uh, synthesize is, is getting those falsos from Cordia de Falcone to work. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's just, to me, that's just like the craziest thing because that initial Mandrito and then that reverso, it's just, it, it, it almost defies body mechanics in a way. Right. There's a lot there. Yeah. It, yeah. But um, no. But I, I I found it I found it really interesting just because like I said I I feel like the one thing that I like about the Ricardiano is he definitely breaks things apart where you have your starting guard and you have your opponent's starting guard so you kind of know what the tactical framework of when you should press the play is and a lot of times you know he'll he'll attack in a way. And it, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, just typical Italian fencing, but he'll attack in a way to generate a response from the opponent um, where you're trying to get them to um, to press their attack before it's really beneficial for them. So he'll do some crazy stuff like he'll he'll come in and, and start with a cut to the leg to provoke the opponent to try to cut at your head. So that way you can catch him in a parry, like a high parry, uh, what he calls his tutto coperta. Um, so you can throw a mandrito and then go in for your press. Um, so again, yeah, so again, you got the injudicious. You, you're trying to get them to do an injudicious thing uh-huh. so that you know where it's going and you have a, a plan for it. Yeah. It's just, it's wild because like, you know, at times when I think that it's it's really simple, he also does something that um, that Palladini talks about. Um, so Palladini says, like, if you ever find yourself in an earnest duel, uh, he he wants you to do this like three thrust action, and it's this faint thrust outside, faint thrust inside, and then thrust outside again with another sfalzata and and wind, and in, and he says it's basically a foolproof technique um and that's that's the progression that he really wants you to take and the ricardiano does something really similar and uh it's it's weird because i like i can get that to work in sparring um and that's i use use it all the time against lefties yeah yeah against lefty yeah yeah it's just like It's such a weird, but but it's not. But it's not. So here's here's why. I mean, yeah. this goes back to what we were talking about. Um, so when I teach, I, I I want people 
to get the mechanical motions down to where they don't have to think about it, all right? So let's think about that action. You've got a thrust to someone's outside, maybe over, if, if they're lefty, over their sword arm. They start to parry it. You're going under, you're going to thrust to the inside. They stop quickly and try to do an oh shit parry, and then you're back to the outside and you've got their tempo, right? But you have that programmed in. And all you have to do is trigger that thought in your head and boom, 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 and get, get the action. Your opponent doesn't know you're doing it, so they are, by the time they do that inside parry again, they are cognitively overloaded. They are, they are reacting in their own oh shit manner. So this goes back to what I was saying is, you are trying to throw shots that are cognitively easy to you, which usually means you've practiced them and you understand them, and then overload your opponent's brain so that they don't have a time to, to create a new plan or to react well to you. So that's exactly, I think, what he's talking about is here's this thing you should learn how to do and practice so that you will overload your opponent's defenses. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I think the other thing that I, I really like about the, uh, the Ricardiano is his use of uh, sort of um, constraining after you've landed a thrust. So different winding actions that you'll do under the opponent's sword after you've you've successfully thrust into your opponent. Yeah, 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 yeah. But don't don't die just because you hit your your opponent. You know, um, the 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 version of that that we teach is you don't drop your guard until you're out of out of uh, measure. You know, you you thrust, you attack, you whatever, but your arm is still out there until you're out of measure because you're still supposed to be covering their blade. You're still supposed to be constraining them as you're backing the heck up. So yeah, very very similar. Um, I think I think Giganti even talks about it. I think he describes it. I can't remember if it's him or, or Fabris, but one of them describes the fact that you, as you are getting out, you are still constraining. You're still covering their blade. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's something that we see a lot with the Bolognese Masters. Um, you know, you'll have the Mindrudo and Reverso Traversado, uh, especially in, in Marazzo. He does that a lot as he's exiting. Um, less so in Manciolino, but you'll have things like Manciolino returning to guard. Um, anytime that Manciolino cuts a Reverso, um, which is interesting, uh, he always goes to Gordi de Faccia as his cover. Yeah. Um, Simply because, you know, with a reverso having no natural endpoint, because you don't have your pectoral muscle to stop the cut, you you basically have to go back into another action. Right. So in order to basically kind of come back to center, um, without letting the arm go too far and creating too much of an opening for himself, he'll he'll cut through and then go straight up into Gordia de Faccia, um, to cover and, and, and step out. That's how he kind of does that. Whereas yeah. if, he, if he cuts a mandrito, then he can just step out and do a mezzavolta. And and look at the the, the single sword plays of, of Dalagokie. Like I said, they're all in threes. So you've provoked your opponent to throw a shot. And then Dalagokie says, okay, if, if he's throwing a fendente uh, mandrito, here are your options. And your options are always in threes. And so the first option is you're blocking. You're staying alive. The second option is you're throwing a counter shot. And in the third option, I've always read in one of two different ways. Either you're throwing a follow-up counter shot or you're throwing a, a clearing blow 
that gets you out of the way as you're backing up and then it lands you back into a, a strata guard. So it's always a block, block attack and generally a clearing shot to get out of the way. It doesn't assume you're just going to hop back. You've got to clear that space in front of you. And that's why a lot of uh, Dalagokie's, uh, I think, third actions in, the, in those series is a stramazone of some sort. You're, you're, you're really clearing that space as you're, as you're backing the hell out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those stramazone, you know, I mean, it's, it's super interesting the way that, uh, you know, you can employ the stramazone as... Um, and its offensive capability. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, there's this one offense that, that uh, Michelino does with uh, Stramazzone where you're in uh, Gordia Sopra So you've got your sword up over your left shoulder. Mm-hmm. And he throws two Stramazzone. Um, and it's just such a nasty progression in play. Because um, you don't really see it. You don't see that, that being the line. Because you think that the person's head is in their way. Right, so that stramazzone comes out over top of your sword, and then the second stramazzone naturally, because you're kind of you're you're able to wind off of that and then come back through. Um, you know, a lot of times it'll land. But the cool thing about the the counter that he gives to that is it's this Gordia de testa parry, and then wind up into Gordia de faccia up underneath, and it's such a fast thing. So going kind of going back to the anonimo. Um, uh, Vienna Anonymous, where doing the smaller tempo in the correct time, mm-hmm. right? You've got this Gordia de Testa and more of, you know, Marazzo and Manchilino's Gordia de Testa where it's a horizontal point. Um, and then winding up into Gordia de Faccia, which is just a simple turn up underneath your buckler um, to go up underneath to, to catch that second Stramazzone. Um, it's, it's super devious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know that line's coming in. You know how to block it. You, you know where it's where it's going to be. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, the Stromazones are interesting for a few reasons. I mean, it's one of those things that I'll throw for clearing the space, for flaying their skin of their face or their neck, um, or if I'm trying to land my the four inches of my tip. I'm not going to usually throw a stramazone to get, you know, the meat of a cut to get into the shoulder or something. I'm going to try and flay them open with the stramazone, either their bare skin or, you know, those, those four inches of your, of your, your sword can really slice through their doublet pretty nicely. So it's, it's an interesting, I've never seen it talked about, but for me, the targeting on that thing is not the, the, uh, the note of your sword. It's that those, those last four inches of, of your sword. So yeah. you're doing it. You're doing it also at extended range, therefore, you know, and that also allows you to back up if you need to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've always, you know, I, I, I don't think people appreciate enough Dalagoke's advice for when somebody tries to beat your sword to take a step back and throw a stramazzone. Yeah. Um, it's one of the most like keen and concise tactical <laughs> pieces that you can have, because, you know especially if you fight somebody who does a lot of Murato or, um, you know, I guess even Manchiolino to a degree or really the Anonimo, where you're going to have somebody that's going to try to do a lot of beating actions and a lot of percussive actions to the sword. You know, the, 
the clear, concise answer to any of that is to just, you know, go with it, go with the beat and then take that step back and throw that strum and Sone. Um, and it, it, it's such good advice. Um, yeah, I would argue anyone who wants to drill on their own, well, okay, everyone should be drilling on their own, but anyone, anyone while you're doing your solo drills, one of the best things to do in, in this Bolognese system is to just make the stramazzoni a natural action. Just take, take your heaviest sword, make it an absolutely natural action so that you don't even think about it. That is your, your go-to oh shit parry when you're trying to get out of the way of someone or when you're closing in like a, a blender and you just want to drive their sword away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah what do you think about the uh there's the stromazzone like cut that uh Manchiolino does let me see if i can find this play real quick this one's pretty interesting i've i've got a a working theory for what i think this is it's ringing a bell but i can't remember it you'll have to read it to me yeah so uh, all right if you were in this situation with the false edges touching each other, and you have the right foot forward. So false edges, you know, this false edge, false edge. So really, it's just an outside bind. Yep. Um, you can deliver a Stramazzone-like sideways falso to his left temple. So I'll, I'll read that again. Yeah, well. If you are in this situation, with the false edges touching each other, and you have the right foot forward, you can deliver a Stramazzone-like sideways falso to his left temple. For your safety, you must then immediately pass back with your right foot, or dominant foot, if you like, delivering a reverso to his right temple. Okay, hold on. It sound, okay, first off, it sounds to me like you're, you're flinging his sword off with the rising cut. I'm trying to... Yeah, okay. So... I mean, if, if I'm envisioning it in my mind, you're flinging their sword off at the rising cut, you're following that circle around, and you're kind of doing almost a figure eight back to their cheek, and then suddenly you're on their outside line and you can do that uh, mandrudo again. But I'd have to, I'd have to play with it. I'm, I'm just thinking through it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I know I, there are lots of theories out there. I know that... Greg Millet kind of sees it as almost like as Vericout. Um, it's not not exactly how I read it, but... Um. Yeah. And again, this is one of those places where if I'm playing with it, because there's questions, I'd go back to the original and, and just look at what... Right, yeah, and look at the Italian. Look at the Italian and, and look at the different ways I can translate it, because there are different ways you can translate all these things. Yeah. Um, and so it, the... it's, it's easy and crazy now because... As much as we, 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 we diminish it, Google Translate is a pretty powerful tool if you, if you use it well. It is, yeah. Um, because what it's doing is it's looking at the entire internet and, and comparing different ways of using words and then bringing you back the average, bringing you back what it sees. So one of the things that I do to start off even is put an entire phrase in Google Translate and then I break it up into individual phrases and I compare how those play out, and then I go and look at Florio, and I try and see if how the words have changed or whatever. Because one of the things that the translate that Google Translate doesn't do well, um, it translates Monco, for instance, very uh, technically as Monco is wrong. So 
you know, they called left-handers the wrong hand and left foot the wrong foot, right? So yeah. you have to understand that there's some phraseology that is very biased in the Renaissance Italian that our, our dictionaries these days are like, nope, that's not what it means. But anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the way that I actually kind of see that play um, is, you know, when you're, you're throwing a stromanzone, so if, like, you're in Cotolunga Strata, for example, and you were to throw a stromanzone as, like, your first intention, you know how sometimes you almost want to lay the flat of your sword over your opponent's in order to get that kind of pull on their sword, so that way you can wind and then you can get engage the wrist and then get the, the wrist cut to turn. Yeah. So I was thinking about that as, okay, so if this is a Stramanzone-like cut from a false edge to get my my edge, my false edge to land on my opponent, if I were to follow that same thing, that same basic uh, dichotomy, but I'm doing it from that outside bind, if I turn my flat over my opponent's sword and then basically snap my hand up like I'm turning up into a palm-out type position to snap my sword down, so I'm snapping the false edge down on top of their head, that initial part is what is kind of allowing for the uh, the Stramanzone-like action. So kind of a beat to, the, to, to your outside. So it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like you're, you're kind of hooking with mm -hmm. a flat, pulling mm -hmm. down, and then you're just letting that hand snap over. So your your cross okay. guard ends up engaged. Yeah. So it kind of becomes like a, I guess, like a German Sturzow, I guess it would be. Okay, so or, you or and Kurzow. I have a sim similar idea. I'm just, I'm pulling up and then following that circle around. You're actually forcing down and then coming in. Yeah. I, I, I think I see where you're going with that. Okay, yeah. I wouldn't... I wouldn't know why he would call that Stramazoni-like, though. Yeah. Unless, unless it, it hinges on the fact that you, you're, you're doing, like I was saying, a flaying action. You're just doing a wrist cut you know, to the face, for instance. Might, that might be explained, the, the Stramazoni part. The way I tend to try to use Stramazonis a lot when I use them is I'm going to do... I'm going to try and clear the line. I'm going to try and do a beat on your blade, and then the stromazoni is going to come right after it as I've, gotten, as I've taken the energy off your blade and bounce it around. Um, but I see what you're, what you're saying is, is more of a kind of a German bind and then a fling type of action, effectively. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the end, if you get a cut from it, hey <laughs> whatever right <laughs> yeah you know that the, the tactic is sound because the first thing you're doing is clearing their blade out of the way and the second thing you're doing is immediately following it with a with an attack yeah i mean the interesting thing about the follow-up to that is like the second play after that is the counter to what happens if your opponent basically drags your sword off and you know is really aggressive in initiating a bind that makes it fail and the response is to step in and kick him in the stomach. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, Marazzo, you know, Marazzo makes that kick to the to the testicles. But um, in Manchiolino, you know, he basically, and that's why I was, I think, I think reading the second play is what kind of led me to think that it might be something that's a little more uh, center line oriented in terms of like trying to keep that that basic, like you're still on that outside. Um, because, you know, if it fails, if they drive you down, 
then that's when that that kick really feels like it becomes available where you can just kind of step in and, and put the foot to the stomach and right. and send them off well and you're also you're closing in on the weak part of their sword um you know w several martial arts talk about you want to be inside the powerful part of the swing of, of the punch or of the the you know get past the note of the sword um, so yeah, if suddenly you find that your sword is no longer the thing controlling the space between you, then you know throwing your body into it and kicking him in the stomach, <laughs> it isn't isn't too bad of a because you've changed the angles, you've changed the distance, and you're now much closer and ready to, to grapple while your opponent is still focusing on that rising false cut. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that it seems viable. Um, oh, what was I gonna say about that? Oh. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, I can't remember anymore. Oh, well. So you said that... Are you are you working on sort of tying together everything with the Northern Italian style into, like, the Rapier Masters in terms of what you're doing for your research on Stringere? So that's my next step in this, in this uh, research. Now that I've kind of gone through the five manuals I wanted to look at, and by the way, Vigiani doesn't have Stringere anywhere in it. Um, I want to now look at the, the other system that I play with, the Northern Italian Rapier system, and I want to see if there's any interesting things I can find when I'm doing the translations. Um, I, I do trust, uh, Swinger, Wilson, Leone's translations. Uh, but I want to go through and see with my new kind of nuanced view of what Stringere might entail if there's anything in the Northern Italian rapier manuals that stops that in its tracks, that, that, that puts big doubt on that, basically. Um, and so far, my knowledge is I, I haven't seen anything. Uh, but... I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to seeing if something either changed or if I just got it wrong to begin with. I don't think I got it wrong because there's, there's too much evidence now through the four books that, that have Stringere. But it might have changed once it got up, you know, what is that, 70 years later in some subtle way. Yeah, for sure. Um, but I yeah, mean, so that... Yeah, fencing has changed a lot in 70 years, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but again, as, as you pointed out, you can kind of see where it came from. Um, yeah. They started using sharp single-handed swords and they started realizing that the stretta was the most powerful thing to do or basically pointing at your opponent's uh, person. And then that led to what you were just describing, which is, you know, you, you string her with the body, but in the meantime, you're also controlling the line with your sword. And then it's a very short step from that to raising your arm a little bit more and pointing at your opponent. And then creating those those quadrants that, that we teach uh, in rapier fighting. So there's a very clear to me path of how we get to where Fabris and Capafero and, and Giganti are teaching. I just want to see if if the uh, if the words changed in any way or for any reason. Um, but yeah, I'm also still working on trying to create what I'm calling the core of the Bolognese uh, uh, spot of the Fia system. And that's, that's been, I put that aside, but I'm trying to basically figure out 
where the four manuals all agree, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna call that, that's kind of the core of the system. And then different manuals, you know, Marazzo, Mangelino have their, have their nuances or their own little quirks, and that's kind of their own system. But yeah, that's another bit of research I'm kind of trying to, trying to do, or basically a class I'm gonna try and teach at some point is just this, this set of actions, this set of descriptions is where all four manuals agree, basically. So that's what I would call the core Bolognese system. Yeah, I don't, I mean, honestly, I guess the one universal action I think that you see between all the different authors is that Falso wind into a thrust on that outside. I think outside of that, like even because like the way that Morazzo approaches single sword is such a sort of aberration compared to the others because it is so wide play oriented except for his, his thrust defenses. Um, but even those are really kind of hard to suss out. I mean, there there's similarities, I think, between his thrust defenses and the way that you look at uh, Manchiolino in some way. Um, I think you could draw some parallels there, but... Well, and, and remember, what I'm focusing on here is, is the Spada de Fia. So I'm trying to limit it down to getting rid of the, of the flashy, the, the Spada de Jacob plays. Um, but I'm also considering things like their description of the guards. You know, where do they... Where do they interlace? Where do they not? Uh, in the very few places where I can find description of movements, because generally they all just say, just step, take a step, right? So I'm trying to also, you know, suss that out. Is there any place where any of them disagree on how to move, for instance? So I'm, I'm going beyond right now the plays themselves, and I'm trying to look at the core actions and how they're described, and if there's agreement or any place that there's disagreement in, you know, maybe your uh, uh, Cota Longa Alta is slightly different than my description of Cota Longa Alta. Well, that'll, that'll tell us something. You know, that's, that's an interesting thing for us to, to be able to note. So that's kind of what I'm getting at is, is going back to the way I teach, starting with the mechanics how do they describe their mechanics how do they describe the, the actions or the, in, the the solo actions themselves then looking at yeah how how does which defenses do they use uh in certain situations um and kind of expanding from there so it's, it's not going to be a short project for me but uh yeah yeah, yeah. no I, th I think that's really interesting i mean one of the things um i think that I'm I've found trying to really try to understand right now for me uh, with Manchiolino is how he uses Gordia to Testa and um, I think I'm starting to hone in on something that I like in terms of the way that he uses Gordia to Testa um, you know he'll use a Mezzamandrito to parry on the inside a lot of times that ends up in like Chingiari Porta de Ferro or um, even in Porta de Ferro. But the uh, Gordia de Testa, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the way that uh, like Fiore uses his. Frontale. Uh, but um, basically, you know, your. The way that I see Manchiolino 
making his his parries um, is much more percussive, um, deliberately trying to go for beats to create space in the mm -hmm. center line, mm -hmm. um, and then attacking right back into the center line. Uh, so you see him do that a lot, where he'll go into Gordy de Testa, he'll make a parry, and then he'll cut him in Dorito uh, from that, that Gordy de Testa parry. Excuse me. And uh, it's interesting. Um, I, and I think, I think part of the difficulty in, in trying to find that, uh, especially in, in practical fencing and, and taking that into sparring, has been the challenge of not allowing that hand to drift too high, um, which is really interesting because I've really come up, I've, I've come to the decision that anytime you strike somebody, you basically always want your cross guard to be lower than your opponent's. Um, hmm. In order to prevent them from being able to strike at your hand, so if you if you decide if you if you try to strike a mandrito, right, and your hand is really high, right, um, and your opponent's hand is low, then they're naturally going to be able to fall fall across and and come across your arm in some way. Whereas if your opponent's hand is low, if you end up allowing that cut to go lower, um, when they raise to meet your your cut in a parry um, you'll be able to constrain and still strike um, and still have leverage um, but you won't necessarily ha have to worry as much about them having a free shot or a strike at your hand if we're talking first intention then I can I can I think I can get behind that um, but the whole point of second or third intention is to make them move their sword completely off of line and then it doesn't matter as much. Um, as a, for instance, that, that, that uh, false edge stromazone you just described, notice once you've got their sword offline and you've done the false edge cut to the head, you're doing a mandrito. Well, part of that is either a secondary cut or it's just clearing the space of where his sword is coming right back up at you, right? Um, but I'll also say I can think of, a, of, of several places where I might bring my sword up at the falso, pound their sword above mine, and then I'm cutting while their sword is offline, pointing up into the, the atmosphere, for instance. So in the second or third intention, it's much more tactical than that. But in a first intention attack, I think I can get behind what you said. I think so. So I always see it as kind of like... Uh, so. For example, if we go through one of his uh, his offensive progressions, right? You've got your uh, let's take his more basic one. So you've got a falso to the hand, mandrito to the head, and then um, you faint the mandrito and you cut a reverso to the leg. Um, but the the progression before that is that falso to the hand and then a mandrito to the head. I found that if if I have my students just do that falso to the hand and then a mandrito and their hand starts to drift high and they let their hand kind of come up um, you know really kind of like snap more of a stromazone type cut and their their arm is at about shoulder height as they're landing that blow a lot of times what ends up happening is 
um, there are instances where it'll just periodically fail for them. Doesn't mm. seem like it, it, it's quite like working out mechanically. Whereas if I encourage them to keep that hand low um, when they cut that mandrito, um, then a lot of times they'll find that they're covered, they're constraining, and they're striking. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah, and, and it's, it's okay. Yes. And it's similar to some st stuff that I teach as well. So I, I see where you're going with that. With what you were saying that kind of threw me off was you were describing the Guardian of the Testa and how, how high the hand goes. Oh, yeah. 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 And, well, and what, what, what you're now describing is, is in a cut. In an yeah, actual yeah, yeah. cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah with Gordy de Testa, yeah, the, the whole Gordy de Testa thing, that was more of like, at what point, uh, at what point are you, like, how much do you trust your sword to kind of cover yourself when you're going into that Gordy de Testa? Very much like Morazzo's Gordy de Testa, right? The way right. that he describes it. Um, like, should that hand be at like shoulder height, just a little bit below shoulder height? I mean, do you, I, remember, I, do you remember what I teach? I think you you were in one of my classes, weren't you? Yeah. Remember that uh, you're creating a, a force field around your body. Right. So if I can see under my blade, then unless the person is like seven feet tall, I am protected. Yeah. Um, if I if I'm seeing over my blade, I am not protected. And, 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 and pretty universally, and that works, I mean, side to side, that works on either side, that blade is, I am creating this force field around my body, and by creating it just on the edge of my body, by necessity, by geometry, their sword has to be pointed past me once I contact theirs. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's the answer I would give. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's actually really interesting, because I, I've, I've found... I think that the answer for the way that Manchialino and Morazzo use Gordy de Testa is just a little bit below shoulder height seems to be just right. But that makes sense because, I mean, you're, you're talking about what, roughly three feet of blade. So you're covering, you know, even if your arms just a little bit below shoulder height, you know, to the top of your head, that's maybe less than a foot and a half, two feet. Yeah. Right. So you're still, providing plenty of coverage for yourself and, and sort of dominating that center line. I think I'm, I'm thinking through when I'm throwing a quick Guardia Testa, my hand is slightly above shoulder height, I believe. And that's, that is what I would call kind of a very fast, very panicked, I need to defend. Um, a more tactical one, sure, shoulder height, when I'm, when I'm planning it and I'm ready for it. I wouldn't go below shoulder height for a Guardia Testa because I can think of several instances where I'm looking over my blade and therefore my head is, is completely barren. Um, and then when you, when you think about Dalagokies, which is kind of a hanging guard, your hand is definitely going to be up over your head slightly, so over your shoulder. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, so the, the cool thing that I've found is, and, and again, this, this kind of comes more from a sword and buckler context. Um, for Manchiolino in particular, but um, what I found is keeping that hand low in that Gordy de Testa parry when, when you have a buckler um, actually allows you the freedom to start to go for for a press to actually mm -hmm. like manipulate your opponent's buckler because mm -hmm. it it puts you underneath. So if your if your opponent's striking a Mandrito, 
um, a lot of times it'll put your hands underneath your opponent's hands um, and then you have leverage um, so you can you can basically step in and Gordy to Testa keep your hands below and then separate the book the buckler and the sword and then allows you to press up underneath your opponent's hands and then they're at a weak angle um, so you're able to drive their hands off and it allows for the secondary secondary or follow-up action yeah yep I see so, that yeah but of course, that is the power of the high to low, though, is you're using gravity in your in your favor. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then the power of the left and right, where you're twisting your body to add that oomph to it, you know. Yeah. So e each one has its has its mechanical uh, uh, usage. Yeah, and I I think that I think the thing that um, is interesting though, and and you know this this might actually speak to what you had said, um, um, not to kind of throw your point out, but. I think with fighting with single sword, trying to use Gordia de Testa, like I've actually gotten into a point where I'm experimenting with just using Gordia de Testa and Mesomandritos as my, my principal parries. Yeah. To just try to stick to uh, what I think really is the core of Manchilino Morazzo and, uh, and the Anonimo Bolognese as in terms of what their, their overall structure is. Um, and it's, it's been a really interesting exploration as, as relying on those two things as my two sort of simple basic parries. Um, and it's uh, it's been a, a, a pretty wild progression. But it also has been pretty enlightening. And, you know, again, there's some, some things in there, uh, body mechanics-wise and also, like, just in general, like, you know, how high should this guard be, you know, those kind of things trying to figure those things out but finding that you've got these percussive parries that really just for the the sheer purpose of opening up the center line um it, it's it's really fascinating um it, it makes it so that way you just don't want to attack somebody when they're doing that because you know, <laughs> yeah you like you give them you give them any sort of like a, a, a wide intention action you give them a cut in any way um and it's just it's just bad news. So the irony of 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 what I sometimes teach and what I've been known to teach, um, when I'm teaching the guards, I teach one, two, three, I think five head guards, five five different Guardia de Testa styles. Okay, so what we've got is the Morazzo Guardia de Testa, Dalagoki Guardia de Testa. You've got the uh, false edge uh, cut. To someone to a, a displacement basically and then if you want to count these two you've got the guardia de faccia and the guardia de entrer okay yeah. so i teach these these five different guards that all guard your face and then when i was at the the, the kind of the the pinnacle of my side sword fighting no one would attack my head <laughs> no one would because they knew it was going to be a really bad bad idea but it's like, man, I have all these cool things I can do. Please attack my head. Yeah. And, and no one would do it. But if you want to break it down, so yeah, I could teach, I could teach you Guardia de Testa, even just Marazzo's uh, Guardia de Testa. I could teach you Mezzo uh, Mandrita, Mezzo uh, Reverso. And I could teach you the two thrusts, the Guardia de Faccia and Guardia de Entrer. And then to also be able to get your body out of the way to defend the legs, because I hate trying to cut down to defend the leg. And that can be an entire system by itself. 
and use that to teach tempo, to teach measure. And after a while, it may become boring, but I could defend everything with those blows. I mean, that's basically Manchiolino's yeah. sword alone, right? Right. Because, I mean, his progression is you do the falso, then you do that reverso to the leg, then you do the falso beat, and then you go into Gordia de Testa to beat their sword and cut a Mandrito back across the center line, right? And then the next two plays are parrying, you know, or withdrawing the leg and, and cutting to either side um, to attack the opponent's hand as they try to cut at your leg. Yep. And then even his um, his defense against a reverso is basically Gordia de Entrere, um, the way that Dalagoke uses it, right? Because uh, he, he says that you you do that falso and then you take a step with the left foot to the outside and parry with the true edge. And then um, the way that I do it, um, and this is, well, the way I, I guess, the way that Chris does it, um, that he taught me, is to basically, you know, make that more of like an entrary thrust. That way you can cut that mandrito to the leg the way that, that Dalagoke does it. Um, it makes oh, more yeah. sense as like a provocation to, right? Oh yeah, I've got I've got a I've drilled in my system. I've got a couple of prov provocations, maybe three, that are three or four parts starting with a thrust. You know, a thrust that's parried out of the way that turns into a mandrito. That you know, and yeah, these these are all things that I've walked through. And it's like this is an automatic action to me because a it's deadly as hell, but also it it encompasses all these things we just talked about. You know, uh, the guardi guardian and Trare, uh, being parried out, going into a cutting mandrito. We would need to add a falso. We would need to add falsos to this to this system that I'm now designing, kind of, and, and manually, you know, because falsos are extremely important too, at least in provocations, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and that is also kind of Dalagokie's uh, uh, single sword section. It's it's very simple, and this is why I like teaching it to start with. And then if anyone wants to get deeper then open the Bolognese Anonymous, then open, you know, Marazzo and, and tear your hair out. Um, but it, it's all very simple, you know, and, and, and don't overcomplicate it because the, the important part is learning how to play with, with tempo, learning how to play with, with measure and getting this stringere that you and I have been talking about correct. Th those are the important things. The rest of it is just the mechanics of, of the blocking and the attack. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's pretty interesting, and, and maybe that'll be a good point to kind of wrap it up on. But, um, you know, starting to think about this tactically and, um, you know, for people to to see this as a, a, that there is a, like, a, a deep tactical approach to the way that these authors are, are writing um, versus, you know, just kind of haphazardly going through a set of plays that there's there's a an inherent lesson there in terms of what the overall structure is that they're trying to teach. Um, you know, the plays kinda. themselves are, 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 this is the way I view them. The plays themselves are lessons that are multi-layered. Um, first off, they're teaching the actions themselves. Second off, if you're doing them well, they're teaching tactic, or, or I mean the tempo and the measure and, and, and how to understand it and how to play with it. And then when you get down to it and you're ready to understand it, then you start seeing the tactics. You start seeing that you are cutting off 
options of your opponent and forcing them to make attacks in areas that you have now opened up. And so I don't think any author can really write those tactics out very clearly because you have to understand what's going on before you understand how the tactics are going to work. And, you know, some people's criticisms on, the, on these manuals is that, well, they don't go too deep enough into, into the tactical or into the, the details. And I'm like, yeah, but from my experience, students don't get the tactics until they understand, until they're at that point where, they, where suddenly it's there and it's right in front of them. And they've been doing it all along. They just now understand what's been happening, right? Right, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that is the interesting thing about the progression of play that you see through the Anonimo and, and the way that Murata presents in um, his plays is, and this is one of the reasons why I think Manchiolino is probably a, a really good starting point if for people who are interested in going into the Anonimo or into Murato is because you'll see the fundamentals of the actions that Manchiolino teaches in every single one of the plays and progressions that Murato and the Anonimo do. Like, when it comes to teaching the basics. Now, I mean, there, there is, there is a, a section on, in like, I think it's like the 400s of the Anonimo. Let me see here. Yeah, it starts at like, let's see. Um, starts on with play 380 and the Anonimo, where he gives basically basic progressions, paired guards, similar to the way that, that Manchiolino gives his, his progressions. Um, and that's sort of the simple like no nonsense thing that you would think that he would start with. Right. But at the same time, like, you know, that material is there in the Anonimo. Um, but still that said, you know, that's basically the entire framework for what, for what Manchiolino gives. Whereas Morazzo is just, you know, everything about the way that he goes through his plays is complex. Yeah. Um, and, and requires some previous knowledge. So, well, it, it requires sussing it out, and unfortunately, I don't think it's possible, for instance, for a brand new, for a person who's brand new to swordplay, to suss it out in a translation, or or to translate themselves, because they haven't had the full speed experience trying to think through a fight, to understand exactly what's going on and why, when I cover, in a guardian trayer would he go for my left hip, you know? Well, because I basically told him to. I covered the, that, that, that space where he was and I gave him this huge opening on my left side and said, come and get it, right? But once you start understanding that, the plays flow so much better. You start seeing the decisions that are being made, even if they're snap decisions, but you have to get to that point through, through, through practicing and through fighting with some people and through practicing again, you know? anyway yeah well that was good david um thanks for coming on and and talking to me man it was uh it was an absolute pleasure it was good to talk to you again yeah absolutely same to you and um you know have fun trimming this one down
that concludes another episode of Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank David Biggs again for coming on and just want to give everybody a heads up about the awesome content that's coming out. Stephen Freitas will be joining me for the rest of the podcast. We've got interviews with um, Greg Mille and Dory Koblenz coming up, as well as Maestro Wars Episode 1. So stay tuned for that and stay saucy, my friends.